You are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast for interview writers of mysteries, thrillers, and suspense books. I am your host, Alan Peterson, and this is episode number 152. In this episode of the podcast, we'll be meeting Alma Katsu, who is an author of five novels. Her latest is an exhilarating spy thriller, Red Widow, which was published on March 23rd of this year. Prior to the publication of her first novel, she had a 35-year career as a senior intelligence analyst for several U.S. agencies, including the CIA and the NSA. It was a real pleasure to talk to Alma about her writing process, about her amazing career in intelligence, and about the blending those two worlds of, of novels, of entertainment, and being true to the uh, intelligence community. And uh, it's an interesting balancing act, but it's really amazing to talk to uh, Alma, who's uh, actually worked in the field, who not only writes by thrillers, but actually worked in the intelligence community. So stay tuned for my interview with uh, Alma coming up here in just a second. A uh, quick uh, reminder to go check out uh, thrillingreads.com forward slash links. You'll find all my links out over there, uh, including joining my mailing list and places to uh, go and rate and uh, review this uh, podcast and all that good stuff. So go check that out at thrillingreads.com forward slash links. All right, here is my interview with Alma Katsu. Hi, everybody. This is Alan with uh, Meet the Thriller Author. And on the podcast today, I'm really excited. I have Alma, uh, Alma Katsu, who is the author of five novels. Uh, her latest is an exhilarating uh, spy thriller, Red Widow, which was published on March 23rd. And uh, prior, prior to her publication of her first novel, she had a 35-year career as a senior intelligence analyst working for uh, agencies you might have heard of, like the CIA and the NSA. <laughs> so very excited to have her on the podcast today. Welcome, uh, Alma. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being here. And then, so Red, I was looking at your bio. Red Widow is your first thriller, correct? You've, you've written other books, but it's your first thriller? Well, it was my first spy thriller. Some people consider uh, like the last two, The Hunger and The Deep, as thrillers, but more, you know, in the horror thriller area. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So is that, did you do that because you have so much experience uh, in the intelligence community? You, you didn't want to do spy thrillers at first or how did that come about? <laughs> I know it seems really crazy and it is crazy, I guess. <laughs> you know, when I was um, like a lot of writers, it took me a long time to actually write that first novel that was saleable and it, about 10 years. And during that time, of course, I, I met with agents and editors and they all said the same thing that I should write a spy thriller because that's what my platform would be. And so I tried, but I guess, you know, a couple things. One is that maybe that wasn't my first instinct, but second of all, I was still working in intelligence at the time and working in the field complicates things because, you know, you have this non-disclosure agreement that you sign when you get a security clearance. And even though I wasn't planning on, um, you know, disclosing any secrets. It sort of hangs in the back of your mind when you're still working. They also have sort of other things that they worry about. So it's just more difficult if you're still in the field. So I was retired a few years uh, before uh, Red Widow was published. I, I think I had just retired when I talked it over with my editor and she really encouraged me to give it a try. And I sort of felt a little less encumbered. <laughs> <laughs> so did so uh, since you were retired, you didn't have to like run it by them or anything like that or well, I still did. It did go oh, through pre-publication review and they didn't ask for any changes, which really, really surprised me. You know, so the other things that they um they have control over when you're still working for them, one is is it an ethic is an ethical issue. So they they get the office of ethics involved. 
And they kind of feel like while you're still in the job that you shouldn't be making money at it in another way. And so that's a, a pretty tough hurdle to clear. And the other one, believe it or not, had to do with media. So when my even when my first book came out, which was The Taker, which was more of a paranormal historical uh, thriller, um, they wanted four days notice, for instance, uh, before I could talk to any media figure. And, you know, in the business, that's just not how it happens. You know, they were Simon and Schuster was sending me to to, uh, you know, book fairs and stuff where you sit in a tent and you wait for media people to just come up and talk to you. So I couldn't guarantee them the four days. And I actually had to leave government service when my first book came out. Wow. And did you always want did you always want to be a writer, even when you were working in intelligence for all those years? Is that always in the back of your mind? Or is yeah, how long you want to be a writer? It's kind of crazy. You know, we as old timers, we say nowadays we never would have gotten hired by CIA or or whatever because we're not that specialized. But in the old days, you know, they were hiring people and looking for aptitude. So for instance, I started at NSA and NSA would give you like, you had these three days of tests in order for them to decide whether or not they wanted to make you a job offer. And I just thought after I did the tests and they offered me the job, I was surprised. I never envisioned that I would go work in intelligence. And I just thought I'd stay for a few years just for the experience uh, you know, give me something to write about in a way. Not not that I went into intelligence thinking that I would write a spy thriller one day. I didn't. I just meant it was just something novel, something that not everybody did, right? And um, so I thought I'd go and I'd work there a few years and then I'd quit and I'd go back to what I'd, I'd always plan- hoped to be a writer. I mean, I started out as a newspaper reporter, but um, but that didn't happen. The career is is pretty fascinating and you get a chance to do a lot of things that you never thought you would. And so I stayed for an entire career and I did kind of stop writing on the outside at a certain point because it's very apparent to you in when you're in intelligence that they don't want you to have an outside life, even if it's totally separate from your work in intelligence, they kind of want you to maintain a low profile. And is that something, do you find that to be a challenge? Because I'm sure with your experience of trying, if you read a a spy thriller by someone who is in an actual, in that community, uh, you're trying to keep it realistic, but you have to entertain. Was that a kind of a a balance? Do you find that kind of weird to do? (laughs) It's really tough. And I think that's part of the reason why in my early attempts, I didn't do it very well because I felt this pressure to try to write a book that was more true to life. Because most people in that I know uh, in the field, you know, while we some of them may enjoy popular culture, you know, spy movies and TV shows and all that kind of stuff, we, we tend to not find it very realistic. And then when editors and agents find out that you're in the business, they all say to you, well, we want you to write a book that tells it like it really is. <laughs> well, that would be very boring <laughs> to most people who like, you know, popular culture stuff. So trying to square that circle was a big challenge for Red Widow. And I have to say, I think that I, I think I did a pretty good job because the reviews are in and most people have said that they've, on one hand, they really like that it gives that insight into what it's really like to work at CIA. But I don't think anybody so far has said it's boring. <laughs> Yeah, and I was reading a, a, a review of yours from, uh, I believe it's called The Cypher Brief. And oh, yeah, The Cypher Yeah, that was really cool. It was actually written by, by reviewed by intelligence professionals, and they were really, they loved it because of the realism, but it was still a great story. So that must have been nice from your peers. <laughs> 
It, it is. I mean, one of the things that's been really rewarding is I get a lot of emails from like retired folks um, and they all say the same thing, that it is the most realistic portrayal of the culture at CIA and the atmosphere and what it's like to be in it. Now, there's always going to be a few things that people are going to nitpick. And I don't want to give away any spoilers, but somebody in the book who is an intelligence agent does do something that would be considered a big betrayal of their country. And for someone who's had, who's dedicated their whole life to protecting the country, the, the thought of one of your peers doing that is it, you, you just can't think of them any other way than that person is a traitor. You know, that person should, should be punished to the full extent of the law. The thing that I found really interesting when I retired and when I would talk to my editor or my agent about it, well, just about this very book. And, you know, they would be outraged that the, the person in the book who is ultimately the bad guy, that he kind of gets away with it. And, you know, um, but that's exactly what happened in real life. So I do find like the views of the people who are inside and outside of the business are, are sometimes, you know, they don't match up, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, well, we went, went a little realism, but then it's like, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> Right. So what's it? Can you give us a little bit more of the plot of Red Widow? Sure. So um, the main character is Lindsay Duncan, and she's, you know, youngish uh, analyst, uh, case officer, I should say, at CIA, who was a real rising star. She had some early successes, big successes, brought in a big asset, Russian asset for the agency. And, um, you know, she kind of gets rewarded for it, sent off to her next assignment. But you know how it is. Whenever you do really well, sometimes you attract the wrong kind of attention. People get jealous of your success. So she ends up kind of um, being shot down a little bit and she's sent back to CIA in disgrace. Well, she gets the opportunity. Um, she kind of sees it as a way to redeem herself, to lead this task force looking for what they suspect is a mole. Uh, somebody might be giving away uh, CIA's Russian assets because they're starting to get rolled up. And so, you know, she's asked to head this investigation. In the course of doing that, she befriends another um, officer at CIA, Teresa Warner, who's sort of known infamously as the Red Widow because her husband was killed in an ops that goes terribly wrong in Moscow a few years earlier. But in the course of doing the investigation, Lindsay kind of stumbles across this web of intrigues that she was all these secrets that she was never supposed to find out. And that trail leads directly to Teresa, the Red Widow. And so what happens there is, uh, yeah, is we'll the whole point of the book. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so yeah. So, and then, um, so the main character, Lindsay, uh, is a female CIA officer. So is she based on you? I have to ask. <laughs> no, <laughs> but she is based on a lot of officers that I know, you know, like I said, I had a very long career. And I also had the opportunity to spend one year as a recruiter. I was one of the, the I was the lead recruiter for the Northeast. So Yale, Harvard, all these big name schools. And I would see the same kind of candidates over and over again. These young men and women who just really wanted to serve their country, you know, their hearts in the right place. They want to do good. And you see them go into the agency. And it's probably the same at most large organizations, right? You kind of see some of that, you know, good-hearted aspiration kind of get kicked out of them a little bit over the first couple of years. That's kind of what it's like. Like no matter how 
how much you want to do good, you end up sort of just being beaten up a little bit, right? By the needs and the culture of the organization you go into. I'm probably a little bit more like this, the, uh, the second main female character, Teresa Warner, who also, you know, had a great career, did very well. But after her husband's death, you know, she's a little tainted by his failure. CIA is not an organization where failure is taken very well, let's say, especially a spectacular failure. And so she ends up kind of suffering for it a little bit. And there's other things that happen. Again, I don't want to give away any spoilers that, um, you know, kind of kind of shows her that maybe the agency doesn't always have your best interests at heart. And, and she ends up feeling maybe a little betrayed. And, and that can make you kind of mad. <laughs> Like any, like any corporate company or business, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's really cool too that you have the 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 um, the main the main characters are are, are women, because uh, most of the CIA books you read, it usually it's a guy. Um, was that uh, something that you wanted that, that was important to you uh, to represent the the female uh, agents? Absolutely. Um, you know, not not to make it's. It, I was going to say not to make too much of it, but it's kind of impossible not to make a lot of it because it is one of the points of the book. But you know, for there's a lot of women professionals in intelligence. I can't give you exact numbers, but you know, you could you could say it's about half, right? Just like the regular population or reflection of of the of the population in the United States, and you know, we don't see ourselves reflected very much in popular culture about spies, whether it's movies or TV or books. I'd say TV is probably getting a little better, but especially in books, it really skews towards the sort of, I don't want to say, I'm going to say it's stereotypical <laughs> hero figure, right? It's usually a man, you know, it's usually skews towards more physical action. Maybe there's a lot of gunplay or whatever. Or military. <laughs> yeah. And, and, I can understand why readers would embrace something like that, but that's not that's not typical, really, for intelligence, first of all, and it certainly doesn't reflect what a lot of the women go through. And I knew there's a lot of great stories out there that involve the women, and I really wanted to get a chance to, to show that. And I'm just so lucky that Putnam, my publisher, decided, yeah, let's go there. So, Yeah, I love the realism, too, you know, um, as a, I, I grew up in Costa Rica, and um, I remember my my mom in the '80s. A friend of ours uh, worked for the embassy, and uh, it ended up with the whole Iran Contra thing. His name he ended up his name ended up, ended up coming out, uh, and he got in trouble. Blah blah blah. But I remember thinking like he's a spy. <laughs> so this is like a regular guy with a suit, you know, like an accountant. So it's kind of cool to see the actual a realistic portrayal versus the superhero type. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you hit it nail on the head when you work at the agency. And 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 this isn't a huge secret because you, you've seen it portrayed mostly in older movies, not more, not really, maybe in the last 10 years. But they did say, we want a, a gray man. We want somebody who is going to blend in, who people aren't going to take notice of so that they can, you know, kind of work under the radar and do what they have to do. Kind of the opposite of some chiseled, you know, Navy SEAL guy with just bristling with hardware, right? That is not really what intelligence work is about. So I was kind of curious about your writing process then as well. I mean, uh, do you do you put in a lot of research before you actually sit down and start writing the book? And do you outline? I was kind of curious what your process is like. 
Well, it depends on the book. So one of the things I've really enjoyed about Red Widow is it's a lot less research. You know, it's something that I've done for over 30 years and it gets to the point where I really have a good sense of, you know, for the plot points, what are the options, you know, for the characters? And and so which one should I take? I don't have to really research it quite so much. Isn't that lazy of me? But you can forgive me because my previous two books, for instance, The Hunger and The Deep are historical horror. So they're based on actual historical events. And I just sort of reimagine them with this horror twist. The amount of research that has to go into them is astronomical. Like uh, The Hunger, which was a reimagining a story of the Donner Party, about 100 characters in the actual event takes place over very specific route over a very specific time. So there's a lot of research that's involved to make sure, you know, you're triangulating everything right. And then you jump this order of magnitude when you go to the Titanic, because that was 2,300 people on a ship. You had the same problem of, now again, I should explain, right? I'm a professional research analyst. So all of these sort of like, you know, what's the factor, what elements are involved? What's the, you know, how should they play? How much weight do you give them, right? This is like all second nature to me. And I realize this probably isn't what most people even think about when they read historical fiction, you know, and, and start to think about what was the research process like. So I'm kind of giving you a shorthand, breaking it down. For the deep, the Titanic book, it was a huge amount of work. And, and you know, like I said, I've been doing this a long time. I've not only been an analyst, but I've run huge research projects. I, I was the director of a research lab for the Defense Department. I worked at the RAND Corporation. I ran huge multi-million dollar research projects. And I'm telling you, that book gave me pause. <laughs> do wow. I really want to do this level of research? And how am I going to juggle all those facts? I'm glad I did. But yeah, that was a that was a huge undertaking. So by comparison, Red Widow is a lot easier. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> And is this a, is it a standalone or is it going to be part of a series? Or? I'm happy to say that um, the the publisher we just just gave us the green light on the second book, oh, so awesome. I am hoping it's going to turn into a series. And you know, there's um, uh, it's in active development with Fox for a TV series. That's actually why I was a little late jumping on the call because we were just talking to the showrunner about how we're going to break out the season. Yeah. So. Oh, wow. Exciting. It's crazy. I've never, I wanted to do this because I wanted to get a sense of how do TV writers, you know, do what they do yeah. because their approach to drama and everything is so different from a book. And it's just crazy because here you are talking with people and you're literally like dicing up this story that you work so hard on. <laughs> you know, I described Red Widow as like a giant Jenga puzzle because everything's so tightly meshed, all the clues and everything that leads through it. And you're watching these people. It's like they're playing three dimensional chess and you were playing checkers. It's insane. So, yeah, you get really lost in all of the, um, you know, all of the details and they have to make it so much more dramatic too. That that's fun. Wow. So yes, yeah, so I, I would imagine it's a whole different type of writing, writing for a t television or a movie versus a, a book. Uh, that has to be a lot more zeroed in, I guess. In their, yeah. yeah. And, and they have to have come up with so many more twists and so many more hooks. And of course it's very visual and, you know, in books you can really go into a character's mind and kind of really show what they're thinking about. And of course you can't really do that in TV. You can show things, but you can't really get into the character's head. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. And then uh, do you, um, 
were you a fan of uh, thrillers bef- before you started to write your own books? Were you, were you a fiction, big fiction reader or not? Or you probably oh, I busy? love fiction. I read everything actually. So that makes me kind of bad in a way. Like, you know, the horror community, they expect horror writers to a degree to sort of be really just immersed in the genre and to really know the horror canon, you know, and to have read all the classics and all that. And, and I'm not really that, right? I just like reading good books. So I, you know, read all over the place. Yeah. Now, of course, you know, when you're in the, the genre and if you're lucky enough to you know, kind of work your way up a rung or two, then you start getting asked to blurb a lot of books. So I'm actually reading probably more horror and more thrillers <laughs> than I would if I were left to my own devices. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's the fun part when you start getting all those books uh, sent to you. But I can imagine it's a little overwhelming. <laughs> it, it can, it's, it's it gets seasonal too. I think because publishers, you know, they have a glut in the spring and they have a glut in the fall. And so then, you know, they start rolling out the books for blurbs like six months in advance or so. And so, yeah, they, they'll just be a, a few weeks where you're getting like I was getting six a day. Requests oh, wow. for blurbs. I know. <laughs> and of course, you can't read six books a day. Yeah. And uh, you just hate saying no to anybody because you remember how hard it is to get a blurb. So, yeah, it's it's gets kind of intense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, any, uh, we think of any uh, spy thrillers recently that, that you like that are kind of like more of a, on the realistic uh, front of things or? Like- Jeez, you know, I, I, the sad thing is, is I haven't had time to really keep up with as many, um, you know, especially spy novels as I would like. I, um, I know Karen Cleveland's having, has a new one coming out. Karen is one of the few other writers who's written, who's had, you know, female lead characters. And she writes very interesting books in that, you know, she really shares uh, the story plot between, uh, you know, having a more domestic angle, like, you know, how does it affect my family? Mm -hmm. She really comes up with plots that sort of hook in the family too, which um, is interesting because, you know, in real life, we're really, we tend to divorce those two worlds, you know, we, you know, you can't talk to your family about what what you did in the office that day, for instance, right? My husband really, well, he's a musician too. He could care less about world <laughs> events. So, you know, he had no idea from day to day what I was working with or what might be bothering me. Or, you know, there were many times where I was working almost 24 hours a day and I'd come home, you know, 10 o'clock at night and we'd be sitting there and something would come on the news and I'd look at him. And I'd get up and I'd know I'd have to go right back in the office. And so then he'd know, oh, well, she was probably working on that thing that was just on the news. But um, she does a really good job at balancing the two. You know, there's a there's there's a lot of great, you know, especially like Jean Le Carre. I love Jean mm-hmm. Le Carre's work because he always, you know, he was very cognizant of, of how working in espionage puts you in this moral gray area all the time. And how do you struggle with it? You know, mm-hmm. how, when did the, the ends really justify the means? Yeah. And I believe he was also an intelligence officer. I'm not hundred percent sure. Of yeah, he was. Yeah, okay. he, he used to tell people he'd only done it for a few years, but then I think towards the end of his career, yeah. we found out that he spent more time in it than he let on. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Yeah. And so what's a, what's a writing day look for you? Like when you're actually, when you're writing a book, do you like, uh, do you write every day? Do you, ha- do you try to have like a set hours? Just kind of curious about your writing process. 
Well, you know, um, I do. I'm one of those authors that think you really should write every day, that writing is like a muscle. And so you develop this sort of muscle memory. I find if I, for whatever reason, I have to take more than a couple days break from writing, it takes like three, four days to sort of get back into the flow of things so that everything isn't so herky jerky and, you know, makes you want to run away screaming that you can't write anymore. So I do try to do that. But but one thing is, and I I think this has to do a lot with just having such a long career. Um, you get to, you learn to trust yourself when you're like really in the best mood to write like new or when you need to edit or need to do other work. Because, as you know, you know, a writer's life is juggling a lot of different skills, really. And especially once you get published, you end up having to do a lot of marketing and promotion and to direct a lot of that yourself, all the way down to creating your own graphics, right? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, you just kind of learn to pace yourself and to do, to not wait for the muse to strike so much as to just do what you need to do <laughs> at that moment and force yourself to move on and do the next thing you need to do. So, yeah, I do think that I write uh, and when I'm creating new, I do best first thing in the morning. So I try to jump on the computer right away. Yeah, so I always tell them, aspiring writers that listen to this podcast is uh, a lot of people are like, well, I just want to write. Well, this, that doesn't work that way. <laughs> you still have, have a lot of stuff you have to do, no matter who's, who's publishing you or if you're self-published or whatever, <laughs> you have to do the yeah. work. <laughs> I think one of the hardest things it was for me to learn as I was making the transition um, is that writing, at least to me, is almost the least of it. And that editing, learning how to revise and how to accept direction from other people and knowing what to keep and what to ignore are the, are the most important things. Because usually the real book comes through, I find, in the rewriting. That's when the deepening and the rich enrich, enrichment of the story and the characters, you know, you've spent some time with them by then. And then you really start to understand their motivations and you can make those tweaks to the story that really make it ring true. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm kind of curious now, I've been asking my guests of the crazy year plus that we've had, has the pandemic affected your uh, writing at all, your style? And do you, are you, are you going to address it in your future books? <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting, the question of, like, as a writer, how do I address the pandemic year is really interesting. And it's just starting to come through to me now, um, you know, that it's something I'm going to have to grapple with. The year itself was a real crazy roller coaster ride. And you probably are finding this true for a lot of writers. We feel guilty because, like, on mm -hmm. one hand, being forced to stay home. <laughs> Is good for writing, right? <laughs> good for business, yeah. Yeah, so it was to the benefit. Um, you know, I had some, it, it's, but the business itself went topsy-turvy. And so, um, you know, I had one book that came out literally the week that COVID broke in America and people started putting themselves in quarantine. And so I was on the road touring and I got pulled back in the middle of tour. Oh, wow. And that book, which was The Deep, you know, had a, had, did not have the greatest year. And I hate to complain because I know, you know, COVID affected people in a lot of ways far more seriously than that, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we lost loved ones, people got seriously ill, people lost jobs, businesses closed. It's hard to complain about a book 
sinking under the waves, you know, it, it did impact it, but you know, at the end of the day, you carry on. And so, um, but then I had a lot of great successes. Like, you know, we sold, uh, you know, Fox picked up the rights for the TV series during COVID, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was kind of a miracle. Cause I found out later that studios bought very few properties because they didn't know when they'd be getting back to work and, and all that. So, you know, I had some great successes. I was able to get a lot of writing done, but the promotion side of it was was very frustrating, yeah. Yeah, I think as writers, we've been practicing self-isolation for a long time, so. <laughs> right. I kind of feel like I should have got more writing done. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so what are you working on now? I know you have the, you're working on the, on the television show or what are you writing now? What's your current project? Well, the crazy thing is, is I'm not a writer for the show. Um, I'm one of the executive producers. So I'm learning and I have never done television before, <laughs> but they decided it was worth making me an executive producer to advise on, you know, the spy craft of it. Yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, so background. that's interesting. I'm learning that what it takes to put a TV series together, which is really hard and um, <laughs> really crazy. I don't know how any TV show gets made. Um <laughs> And two books. So the next historical, the next book in the in the queue is going to be historical horror. It's uh, the fervor is the name of it, and it's actually a World War II based story, and it has to do with the Japanese internment. Mm. And I am half Japanese. My husband's family were all interned. Many of our friends' families were interned. So I, it's it's a historical event that I understand very well. But you know, all of the historical horror are really meant to sort of reflect. Um, not just what happened then, but why those stories are still relevant. And so it gives us gives me an opportunity to really look at what's going on now in America and the anti-Asian hate movement and this rampant white nationalism. And it up, gives me a chance to sort of look at COVID through this filter because it's what happens in the book is sort of looked at as a disease. A disease that spreads. So anyway, that's what I'm working on right now. I'm I'm doing the revision for it, like the umpteenth revision for it. And then I get to work on the next um, book in the Red Widow series, which is already plotted out, completely plotted out. I hope it goes quick as it needs to. And uh, that'll be for 2022, I think. No, 2023. Oh, okay. Wow, they really, they really planned them out way out in advance. <laughs> It's funny how fast the year seems to go by, too. Yeah, this year's almost gone already. It's almost in May, practically. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. So um, before I let you go, I always ask my guests, for our aspiring writers that listen to the show, any advice for them as a writing? Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> but it's probably going to be advice they've heard uh, already from, from other, right? Because we only have so many things to say, and that's read, 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 and write, write, write. Like. Yep. Um, you know, you, you're not going to get better as a writer unless you read and analyze other writers' work. And that's hard, I think. Um, you know, we all get into this because we love reading and we want the enjoyment and the pleasure of reading. And I've been chastised for saying this, but maybe it's because I'm an analyst, right? When you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I think you have to analyze what you're reading. Why does it work? Why does it not work? You know, what parts do you like? What parts do you not like? 
in order to figure out then how to improve your own writing. And you have to write. I know not everybody writes every day. I, I would say the majority of writers will tell you you need to write every day. But even when it's painful and it's not coming well and it's almost like you're pulling out your own teeth, just force yourself to stay in the chair and force yourself to write another page and then two more pages. And if you keep doing that, it'll get better. Yeah, that's good advice. Yeah, I love it. Um, okay, well, Alan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you about the about thrillers and Red Widow is out now, so the listeners need to go check that out uh, to, for for a great spy thriller. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Meet the Thriller Author. If you have a moment please do check out thrillingreads.com forward slash links where you'll be able to rate and review this podcast or simply rate this podcast wherever it is that you're listening to it, uh, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Audible, Amazon Music, uh, whichever podcast app you prefer, uh, please take a moment to rate this uh, podcast. It's the best way to help other fans of uh, mystery and thriller books to find the uh, podcast and uh, it helps me get the word out and so it's the best way to support the podcast so i do appreciate that and if you're interested you can join my thrilling reads mailing list you'll find the uh, sign up form at thrillingreads.com forward slash links once you subscribe for free you'll be notified about discounts and deals on great books in the mystery thriller and crime fiction genres You'll also find my social media links and my author website over at thrillingreads.com forward slash links. So check it out and say hi. All right. Take care and stay safe until we meet again on the next episode of Meet the Thriller Author.